Greetings, this is another edition of Sheer Intelligence. I'm Robert Shear, but the intelligence comes from my guests, and in this case, it's Joel Whitney, who's just written a really terrific book called Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. And my actually, my only disagreement with the book is a little bit with the title, so let me just begin there, and you can lay out the thesis. Uh, but it's a story, of course, about how the CIA... Uh, secretly funded the Congress on Cultural Freedom and lots of other organizations and got involved right after World War II and continued right through the Cold War, uh, basically manipulating uh, publications and movies, everything else to so-called win a battle for ideas with the uh, Soviets and ended up in the process adopting some of their more nefarious means. But when you say the CIA tricked the world's best writers, you're talking about a pretty sharp group of people like Plimpton and Styron and all that. Were they really tricked? Yeah, well, that's a great first question. I did an event uh, in Berkeley last week and actually had a, a Paris Review magazine veteran um, come by and ask me essentially that same question. And his his reservation was the word finks and the word tricked. Um, uh, more Finks, though, which he thought was derogatory as someone who had been at the Paris Review. He, he you know, he may have felt that there was um, some, whether well-intentioned or um, misinformed, um, idea of patriotism. Um, and Finks, of course, as you know, when you finish the book, comes from one of my characters. Tricked was the word I settled on how the CIA tricked the world's best writers. It could have been paid. It could have been um, subsidized. It could have been used. It could have been collaborated with. And I actually envisioned uh, at one point, I couldn't sell this to my editor, uh, a, uh, a cover where in, in sort of lighter shadow behind the word tricked would be all those other words going up and down the, the front of the book. Yeah, I think a lot of the writers had different motives. And actually, some of them throughout the book, you'll see, you you remember, they changed their minds. So some of them um, were more in favor in the early 50s by the time the Vietnam War hits and the CIA's reputation is a little more tarnished. Some of them, some of them were less in thrall with the agency and other kinds of anti-communist um, institutions. So... Um, yeah, it might have been any other verb there besides trick. What I, I found, uh, and knowing some of these people, uh, they're a pretty sharp bunch. I mean, this really goes to, I think, more David Halberstam's idea and the best and the brightest with his classic work on what happened in Vietnam, that these were the, the best products of the meritocracy. These, this was the creme de la creme of Harvard and Yale and the Yale Review and all that sort of thing, the brightest minds, the most talented people, and for whatever reason, sometimes for greed, but also, you know, they, they bought into it. What they bought into was basically a stupefyingly simplistic and wrong-headed notion of what was going on in the world. 
And that's the overwhelming thought I came away with from your book, which is great in detail, great storytelling, you know, whether it's about Pasternak or whether it's about Sontag or anybody. I mean, they're all in there. There's a lot of really rich detail. But Thank the you. overwhelming sense that I got from this book was how, once again, using Halberstam's idea of the best and the brightest, how did this group of people who certainly were literate and well-traveled and tested well and got great grades at the best schools and studied under the best people get it so wrong? Yeah, I think that the, the idea of the oversimplification that you described in your question, I think that's accurate. And I think the sharper ones were further, were more removed from that simplification. And then what you see are several groups in the anti-communist movements, several actual organizations that were sort of recruiting people, that were representing the CIA's slush funds, um, who are luring people in who um, have standing internationally, people who can do some soft power work, but might, if they know exactly what's going on, they might be a little too critical of it. So if you start, for instance, in Berlin after World War II, you have a group of people who were familiar with Stalinist methods to the degree that perhaps they were, they were traumatized by them. So those people were sincere, but they weren't necessarily um, nuanced in their understanding of how to maybe fight totalitarianism. They thought essentially that the best method was to fight fire with fire. So in a way, these were guys who had a conspiracy theory. Their conspiracy theory went like this. Soviet Russia is penetrating organizations around the world. They had some evidence, Comintern and other organizations, um, but they had no sense of scale, and I think by the time you have McCarthy discredited in the middle 50s, some of these guys were probably willing um, to dial back some of their initial fears, but by then they'd set this great movement in motion where it was just huge amounts of money that the CIA could offer. Um, and so what I look at, um, as you remember, in the book is just I look at these little intellectual magazines that were initially recruited to do two things. One, to push back against anti-Americanism. So they wanted to tout and, and brag about our high culture because in Western Europe, which was the key battleground, we were known for our pop and low culture. We were known for martial funds. We were known for our tanks. Um, so one can sort of appreciate that, but then it comes with uh, another idea, which is to discredit the Soviet Union as often as can be. And when you, when you see that, how it plays out, you start to see disinformation beginning to spread. And what you see presiding over both sides of that idea is a regime of secrecy, which is problematic when you're talking about magazines because you're talking about secrecy being used to preside over and rule over the free press that we're supposed to be the champions of. The reason your book is compelling, and I think people should read it, and let me just be clear right up front, I read it mm -hmm. straight through. Uh, <laughs> I think I had a one breakfast break, but I uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it enormously because it, it really you. makes these characters come alive. And they're not cardboard characters, whether you're talking about Irving Crystal or you're talking about, you know, Irving Howe or, you know, George Plimpton or anybody. There's a whole bunches of them run through uh, 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 the book, and you really are introduced to the cultural life of uh, Paris and London and New York and, and, and so forth. But again, I keep getting back to this one question. You know, there's a thing in newspaper business, I remember one editor telling me, too good to check. 
And maybe <laughs> when somebody's writing you an actual check and you're getting money and you're getting <laughs> first class airfare and they're funding your wonderful magazine, your little magazine, and so you don't right. have to go to your parents because most of these people were super rich and they could just go to their uncle or father or something and get some more money. But still, it was now you know classy to get it from some secret uh, Fleischmann yeast or some right. place that was a front <laughs> right. for the CIA, you know. And so, yeah, you're 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 involved in intrigue and all that, which I guess a lot of writers like to be involved in. But the idea that they they they, they drank the Kool Aid, right, and, and thought they were saving freedom is the, the part that I I still don't get. There was. It does seem like there was a big pivot after World War II, and I think one of the one of the organizations that normalized the idea of secrecy ruling over the media, which is eventually what you end up with in a program like this, was the OSS. A lot of the people, the founding lights of the CIA, came to see that the OSS had done some great work in, as they saw it, thwarting the Nazis during World War II. So a lot of the people who founded the CIA. They understood that if the Soviet communists were using secrecy to penetrate our organizations, instead of thinking of how do we stop the penetration, it seems like it turned into a system of let's preemptively penetrate our own organizations just to make sure we can watch them and keep them on the up and up. And of course, one of the ways that they keep people in line, as you say, was through the money. So. In terms of the official magazines that the CIA created and presided over, the British spy who overthrew Mossadegh, he would have been in June of 1953. His name was Christopher Montague Woodhouse. He would have been working on the CIA magazine for London Encounter. He would have um, empowered the two editors, one American, one Brit, Stephen Spender on the British side, Irving Crystal on the American side, both working out of London, one paid through secrecy um, of, the, of the British state, one paid um, indirectly through the CIA. This spy overseeing this Woodhouse, he would have then turned in the late summer towards overthrowing uh, the democratically elected leader of Iran, Mohammad um, Mossadegh. And then later, he's also feeling so good about this, this system of what essentially you have are coups as covert ops and then long-term soft power propaganda um, all, also on the covert ops side of the CIA and uh, British Secret Services. So he feels so good about this that he's later on a contributor to Encounter. So magazines like Encounter, they were created in Paris, they were created in Italy, they were created all over Europe. Um, and then they spread to the Nordic countries, they spread to the Third World what they did was they involved people at different levels. So the people in the know would be people who were editors and regular contributors, and it would even for them be kind of an open secret. So one person I interviewed was a guy named Nelson Aldrich, and he collaborated first, um, well, he worked for, I should say, first with the Paris Review. The Paris Review was not one of those magazines created by the CIA, um, or if it was, it was sort of indirectly used. It was used as Peter Matheson, the writer who was one of its founders, as his cover in Paris in the early 50s. But then he says he resigned from the CIA and there was no connection. Well, later on, George Plimpton, the famous writer and man about New York, who was the public face of the Paris Review, 
through its formative years and for many decades, um, he found a way to get CIA money through the Congress for Cultural Freedom, its cultural propaganda front. So that's a second tie. Um, later on in my research, I found a third tie uh, through a, a founding managing editor. So you have such a vast network of money for culture that in one organization, one magazine that's sort of only a tangential CIA asset or friend, you can find three big separate ties. I'm glad I got this chance to talk to you because the book reads the way you talk. It's not vindictive. <laughs> it's not smearing people. It's not doing what they did, actually. Uh, right. what, what these folks did in the name of anti-communism was they perfectly happy, thrilled to sail out and destroy their buddies, their college classmates, to smear them, uh, smear intellectuals that they yeah. respected. That, that's really what happened. You know, you're using yeah. your power, your clout. And there's, there's an analogy right now, I think, with this whole discussion of fake news. These people were actually doing fake news. They were being paid yeah. by a government agency, the CIA, uh, cooperating, following instructions, and sometimes censoring articles, editing mm -hmm. them, and so forth. So they're part of an official government propaganda uh, regime that continues quite right up through Vietnam and everything else. Uh, and so they become a caricature of the whole, you know, uh, democratic experiment, which is certainly not what the founders had in mind, and they get very vindictive uh, towards people who disagree with the narrative. And the reason I began the way I did asking you, the, the irony here is the people who objected to their official narrative turned out to be quite early on right. So, for example, you mentioned Nelson Aldrich, and mm -hmm. you have him placed as one of those people who knew what was going on and at the parties. Well, I knew Nelson Aldrich as a guy I would chat with at Elaine's in New York for years. Mm -hmm. And by that point of the 60s, he knew it was all bogus. He was not yeah. a supporter of the Vietnam War. And in fact, right. he wrote a very good book about the elite and how out of touch they are, the economic yeah. elite and so forth. And I found him quite supportive of ramparts, you know. I couldn't get any yeah. money from him from his wealthy relatives, but nonetheless, he seemed like a... <laughs> Got to try. And you mentioned another person, you know, you uh, one point where, I, I don't know, if I, I was a little unhappy with, you mentioned Francis Fitzgerald, the famous uh -huh. writer of Fire on the Lake and Wild yeah. Blue Yonder, great journalist, mm -hmm. and her father was a well-known, you know, deputy head of the whole CIA, Desmond Fitzgerald. But yeah. the fact is, Frances Fitzgerald also, she studied with Zbigniew Brzezinski. She'd gone to the best Ivy League schools. But the fact is, very early on, she embraced uh, an opposite view. She saw yeah. that the Vietnam War was bogus. It was a, a fiction. Uh, and, and the claims made were wrong. And she wrote a, a devastating book on it very early on. So it just seemed to me... Uh, these the crowd you are describing. I'm not going to minimize the damage they did because they right. they stifled debate. They prevented a good discussion from taking place that would have avoided Vietnam. Okay, right. it would have avoided the confrontation with Cuba. You know, it would have avoided the overthrow of Mossadegh. You know, and we can go down the whole list. So I'm not minimizing the destructive, you know, <laughs> impact that they had and the, the stupefying, really, uh, the ignorance of the debate. And I just give two 
examples of that, uh, you know, but I want to get back to how quickly some people at least escaped this net, including, say, William Styron and others. Uh, But two villains that really emerged in their world were Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre. And, mm. and it's interesting because both of those people, particularly Bertrand Russell, had impeccable anti-communist credentials. Bertrand Russell, you know, had famously attacked communism as an evil and anti-intellectual and stifling of thought. And certainly Sartre had shown a, a considerable independence. But yet because they teamed up to do something called the Vietnam War Crimes Commission and they challenged right. America in a very fundamental way uh, on, on what it was doing, not only in Vietnam, elsewhere— uh, the same crowd, and to the ones that were still influential, went out to destroy Sartre and Russell. So what I want to get across is it's not minor what they did. Your book exposes the, the fundamental distortion of American politics during the post-Cold War period, which is where all this stupidity came from. My only question, and it makes for a great read and it really reveals a lot, I look at the current situation where we don't even have a good communist enemy because the communists that are in power, the ones we're trading with in Vietnam uh, or China now. So we're inventing Russia as a reborn communist power enemy. And and we have this whole campaign now as if, you know, now Putin is the evil empire. Uh, yeah. And so there is a current echo in, in sort of yeah, how easy it is, is to manipulate people. Yeah. Well, just on the first uh, point you made about um, the meanness or the lack of meanness in the book, um, that was something I wanted to be very conscientious about when I went through edits with my editor. Um, there's a great scholar and writer at UC Berkeley who, who said something that I saw quoted recently, be tough on the institutions and be soft on the people. And that was reinforced again and again when I saw some of the collaborators with these cultural fronts of the CIA um, changing their minds, um, learning from things like Vietnam, and seeing them change their minds actually gave me a lot of hope because, you know, you can be on the payroll, you can be someone who's an operator, you can be someone who thinks of the world as a good side and a bad side, and therefore whatever we do represents the good side. And then you can wake up from that. You mentioned Sartre. He was absolutely attacked by one of the CIA's magazines, and his magazine was seen as a threat, and the French magazine proof. Uh, based out of Paris, was in some ways an answer to Sartre's magazine and his attempts to um, deal, you know, to treat the United States the way um, it should be treated when it was going against its values. He would call them out on that. Neruda, Pablo Neruda, the poet, was another one who who suffered severe reputational damage uh, by this cultural front of the CIA, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, when they found out some of these operators found out that he was up for the Nobel in 63. They wrote a, a quiet sort of secret white paper about him. And they made some links to Stalinism through his Stalin prize. And it was, of course, the year that Stalin had died that he took it. And they also made up some stuff that I think was, you know, viciously untrue that he was in on the attempt to murder Trotsky. Um, so this is reputational damage that then is doubled later by CIA's actual overthrow of his friend in Chile, Salvador Allende. So what I see is if someone's being physically harmed by the CIA, that's one thing that we've accounted for in a lot of 
historical books and political books. If someone's being reputationally damaged by CIA propaganda, you see that in some of the academic books that look at the so-called cultural Cold War. But I wanted to remove the wall between those two areas and show that um, both of those things happened in a context where a lot of people were um, just made terrified by the fact that you had evil on one side and a fighting fire with fire mentality on so-called quote-unquote, our side. The book is called Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. So, and I have to take a short break so stations can identify themselves, and we'll be back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Joel Whitney, and the book is called Finks, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers. So, Joel, let me ask you a question that I was about to ask when we took our break. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the CIA because the title of your book is How the CIA, the subtitle, How the CIA Tricked the World's best writers. And there we get to a, a pretty sinister cast of characters, and I just want to bring up one who shows up a lot, because I know something about him from my own freedom of information files, because I was the editor of Ramparts, and I was involved in some of this stuff, and that's James Jesus Engleton. Yeah. And I am the proud possessor of, of a record in which J. Edgar Hoover, at one point, after all the Rampart stuff, exonerated me and said he's going to close the sheer case. I was the last, well, not the last, but I was an editor of Ramparts at a critical moment. And he had investigated me at the behest of the CIA and largely James Jesus Engleton. And he said, there's no there there. This guy likes to have a good time. He wants to meet women. He wants to have a good <laughs> meal. You know, but the fact is we've been investigating him for, I don't know what it was, five years around the clock. And, uh, and there's no there there. Okay. And, uh, and J James G.C. Engleton and others in the CIA denounced him. And said, you can't do this, you know, uh, and so forth. It wasn't just, I wasn't the only one that they wanted to go after. Uh, but, you know, th these guys were playing hardball. And they wouldn't yeah. mind when you traveled to another country, because I found myself, you know, getting uh, <laughs> harassed in different countries. I was in jail briefly in Mexico, and I was in jail briefly in uh, uh, Lithuania, you know, and uh, 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 other places, Algeria and so forth. I didn't want to get paranoid about it. But they had a reach worldwide where they could make your life really rough, and, or ended for that matter. So what about James Jesus Engleton? What have you learned about this guy? Well, he he was part of this uh, post-OSS group that understood how important spying and covert ops had been in World War II. And from there, he makes all kinds of terrible mistakes. Um, he and his group believed essentially that they needed to do better propaganda than the Soviets did. And one of the ways that they thought they could do it better was to do it subtly and you can say secretly. So when this program is threatened with exposure in 64, 65, 66, and 67 through various um, sources like Ramparts and the New York Times, um, this privilege of secrecy that they enjoyed uh, was not something that they were willing to give up. So you have... 
uh, something that is described as relatively benign, this, this funding of culture through the Congress for Cultural Freedom, the funding of student movements through the National Student Association, the funding of labor unions that would be less uh, communist-influenced um, than the communist-dominated ones that they presumed were out there. Um, these were seen as benign answers. They were reactions to Soviet penetration. And so secrecy is a key to making them work. So even if you want to make the argument that, for instance, the Congress for Cultural Freedom never censored its magazines, which I think has been uh, severely disproved, they did censor, um, even if you wanted to say that they published all sorts of great writers, which clearly they did, that was part of the subtlety of it and part of the brilliance of it um, and part of the soft power charm of it. Um, even if you want to say all that, when the secrecy is exposed by honest accounting in the media, the fourth estate, the adversarial media of, you know, American bragging around the world, they are so attached to their secrecy and so upset, the CIA group, uh, led by people like Angleton, that they um, commit something that is about as anti-American as anything in our system, which is more secrecy, more media penetration to the point of penetrating first the anti-Vietnam War press, second the student, the college student newspapers and press, um, the alternative so-called press, which essentially is a license to do what they did later. So that first thing I described where Ramparts was penetrated leads to Operation Chaos, presumably that leads to Operation Mockingbird in the 70s. Um, by the time we have Carl Bernstein reporting on Operation Mockingbird and John Crudson re reporting on its international equivalent in the New York Times, uh, Bernstein and Rolling Stone, you essentially see the CIA trying to have at least one agent at every major news and media uh, organization it can do in the world. And Crudson reporting in the Times at the end of 1977 essentially says that they had one agent or contract agent at a newspaper in every world capital on earth. That's astonishing. They could get stories killed or get stories to run that portrayed the CIA's views in a favorable way um, or, or kill them if, if, if they did not. Um, and so Angleton is behind a lot of this, just to sort of circle back to your question. But go ahead. No, well, but I want to get at, at, at this. There's an interesting contradiction here because this is not benign. What no. happens is you create an atmosphere in which, and you can have it in a contemporary moment. Oh, let's get rid of Assad in Syria, for example. That sounds like a right. good liberal thing to do. And yes, there are great human rights violations by this yeah. dictator. Yes, he kills innocent people. Yeah, you know, so did Stalin. Yes, yes, so did Khrushchev. Okay, uh, we get that. And then you build that up into an argument of that there's a, this war going on between obvious good and obvious evil, and any discussion about any gray area is some kind of moral equivalency. It means you're insensitive. It means you're saying the same. And the irony here is that, and Angleton was a product of an elite education, actually was half Mexican, so maybe that gave him a burden in those circles. But the fact is, you know, he, he, he could drink cocktails with the best of them. And what came out of this was an arrogance 
that because okay. you were on the side of the angels, the best and the brightest of, of Halberstam, it was okay. Mac, Robert McNamara, famously, you know, uh, one of the Ford company geniuses and so forth, it was okay to kill three and a half million Indo-Chinese, including, and then in, in addition to almost 59,000 Americans, because you had figured this out. You know, yeah. and you knew who the good guys and bad guys. Now, looking back on it, it's just, uh, of course, absurd, you know, yeah. uh, that you're in this country that had no way of inflicting damage on us and had a thousand years of uh, hostility towards China and had no real interest in Russia and it didn't fit the model at all. And, you know, in terms of the specific incidents that you have a chapter on, this Michigan State project where, you know, Stanley Scheinbaum, whom you describe as, as a whistleblower, which he was, uh, where, you know, I wrote about that before there was a Ramparts. I wrote about it in a report to the uh, Robert Hutchins uh, Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Henry That's Luce right. was on the board. It was very respectable. And, and, right. and, 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 and But because Stanley Scheinbaum, one of the few individuals that I interviewed to do that story, uh, he had seen the horror of it, and he was yeah. willing to speak out. None of the others were. Mm. By the time I got to Stanley, I had gone through almost every professor, everyone had worked for either the CIA that I knew about, or I worked on this Michigan State project, which was foul from the beginning. You take a guy, no Din Diem, who didn't even share the, 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 the religion of 90% of the people. There you come, you find him in a Catholic monastery in New York, and you decide he's going to be the George Washington of Vietnam, and you get in this <laughs> crazy uh, intervention, right? And, and then yeah. 10 years after that, you do that, prevent the Geneva Accords and everything in the early 60s. The only reason I knew about that story, I went to the stacks at Berkeley. I want to know what's this place Vietnam about? And one of the guys in, involved in this thing had died and his widow had donated his papers. It was totally accidental. I, I blew yeah. the dust off the papers and I found the evidence of their engineering torture and everything else to keep this guy damn in power. Unfortunately, Stanley Scheinbaum was willing to say it. The depressing thing about that and about why we don't have more Edward Snowdens and so forth is none of the other folks talked about it. They all stonewalled yeah. me. And they didn't come yeah. clean. And, and it what feels very lonely to be a whistleblower. Well, and what's interesting about your book is there's denial. Uh, even, you know, Peter Matheson, you know, I mean, Matheson's a very good author, a very interesting guy and everything. Mm -hmm. But at the end, he's still putting down a documentary filmmaker who he had actually told the story to. And they don't right, really and, come clean, as you point out in your book. That's why your book is, is so important, because the story is not well known. It's still The story is not up. well known. It gets buried. It gets buried under other things. I mean, the beginning of your question and your comment, I, I see it now. I, I, in my own notes, I call it super politics, where essentially there's something that's so evil and so frightening that we have to change how we how our democratic institutions work and whether they remain democratic. And so on the first part of your question, yeah, there was this no notion that since we're on the side of the angels, we can do a lot of things that we wouldn't normally do to fight Lucifer. And what you end up with, I think anyone who uses the moral equivalency argument, you know, you can't compare American crimes to uh, Stalinist crimes. It starts off as true, and the more you use it, the more it's a shield to make us more Stalin-like. I mean, I don't compare American history or American foreign policy to anything that Stalin did, except what I do in detail. And um, 
people who talk about Vietnam, if, if you count all of Southeast Asia, some of them, like um, Viet Nguyen, the current Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction for his book, The Sympathizer, he talks about it in terms of six million lives lost, um, which is getting up into monumental numbers. The book is How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers by Joel Whitney. And the more I talk about the book, the more I think, yes, they were tricked because they, <laughs> well, they, it's not a bad title because the fact I of the matter is. I used to soft sell over well, here and you no, but the, into it. But no, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is these were, again, I get back to how it's the end, the best and the brightest. They were smart people. And yes, I've known them and I've known them personally, many of them. And, and they, they weren't, you know, they didn't want terrible things to happen. And a good number of them denounced the, the previous stuff. Uh, and, yeah. and, and so, I, I guess trick work, but the problem is it's it's not a game in which there are not victims. There are, you know, you claim you're going to make it a safer world, and you make it a far more dangerous world, and you end up with a situation that Martin Luther King in his famous Riverside Church described. He said, you know, we're talking about violence. He said, my government today is the major purveyor of violence in the world today. And we got to that through a pattern of, of to stop being critical of our government, to stop being th- yep. to thinking about it. And so I'm really happy that we have this book, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Writers, Joe Whitney. Thanks so much. Available. You get it from OR Counterpoint. And, uh, and so thank you. Our producers you. are Joshua Shear and Rebecca Mooney. Our technical team are Kat Yor and Mario Diaz here at KCRW. Um, join us again next week. KCRW's Car Donation Program is sponsored by local Kia dealers, presenting the all-electric Kia EV6 with AR windshield head-up display and capable of going 0 to 60 in 4.6 seconds. More info at Kia.com.